This summer, Europe and much of the United States have experienced unusual heat. In places as far flung as England and Utah, the highest temperatures ever recorded. And the heat wave has in turn prompted new calls to do something about global warming. Our guest today says we should cool it. Bjorn Lomborg on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. President of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is the author of a number of books, including the 2001 bestseller, The Skeptical Environmentalist, and most recently his 2020 volume, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Bjorn Lomborg is also a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford University. Bjorn, welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. Question one, the dog days of summer, we're speaking in the middle of August. So far this summer, the United Kingdom has experienced a temperature of more than 104 degrees. I'm giving everything in Fahrenheit here. Of course. 104 degrees, that's the highest Britain has ever recorded. In the United Kingdom, Spain, Portugal, Portugal and Germany, some 4,600 have died of heat-related causes. Here in the United States, Newark, New Jersey has, for the first time in history, recorded temperatures of more than 100 degrees on five consecutive days. Utah, again for the first time in history, has recorded temperatures of more than 100, 100 degrees for 16 consecutive days. And by the way, we're, we're talking on August, what is today, the 16th? We're talking the second half of, as the second half of August begins. And um, I noticed this morning a report on unusually high temperatures in central China, 110 degrees in Chongqing. British scientist Stephen Belcher, without climate change, temperatures such as those we've been experiencing this summer would be, quote, virtually impossible, close quote. So question one is simply this. Is he right? Are we experiencing temperatures as a result of global warming? Or are they at the far end of any kind of normal distribution? They still fit within some normal notion of weather pattern variability. I would look. I'm, I'm a social scientist, but I would imagine that he's right. Uh, what we're seeing, absolutely, and this is also what we'd expect: as temperatures rise, you're going to see more heat waves, and that will be a problem. Uh, the my my contention with this issue has never been: is climate change real? Absolutely, it's real. It's man-made. It is something that we should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. I want us to get a sense of proportion. That is. Of all the issues that we're facing, how big of a problem is climate change? And then, of course, the second part is, are we making good policy to actually address this? And I, I think the, the heat waves are a great way to start this conversation. So look, many places have had unusually high heat waves, and that's what we would expect from, uh, from global warming. Mm -hmm. But we need to get the information not just when they fit, with climate change, but also when they don't fit with the narrative. So most people don't know that almost everywhere on the planet, many more people die from cold than from heat. So you just mentioned China. Yes. Uh, and China every year, this is from a, a 2022 article in The Lancet. It's the first article uh, with lots and lots of uh, uh, scientists trying to estimate how many people actually die from heat and cold. They estimate that in uh, Eastern Asia, so mostly China, about 80,000 people die every year from heat waves. We should definitely know about that from heat, all kinds of heat. That's definitely terrible. We should definitely be talking about that. But every year, 1.15 million people die from cold. We're not well 12 informed. times as many, right? So it's 14, yeah. 14 times, times as, many. as many. Yeah. So I just did that You're on the, the calculator. No, the it's not like I could do that in my head. But uh, so the fundamental point here is to say we're not well informed if we only hear one argument, oh my God, there are more heat waves. We're going to be, you know, we're all gonna die. We need to do something about this. And, and if, if you'll just allow me briefly, because it also matters in how you then tackle this. Remember, it's actually, it turns out to be fairly easy to tackle more heat. We know how to do that, it's air conditioning. If you look at the US, despite the fact that temperatures have risen over the last century, uh, heat deaths have dropped dramatically in the U.S. They t used to be huge. They're fairly minor 
uh, now in the US because we have air conditioning. It's very simple to do. You can do that. You just need to go indoors or go to the mall that's uh, uh, air conditioned in those one or two or three days when this is, you know, the, the heat really peaks. On the other hand, cold deaths is much harder to deal with because that requires you to have heating on for the whole winter time. That's often costly and something that pensioners and poor people can't really afford. And one of the things that have happened because we have made climate policies is that energy has become more expensive. And that means that people can't afford to keep their homes as well heated. So what's actually happened in the US and probably also many other places, but we don't have as good data, is that heat deaths have gone down despite global warming, but cold deaths keep going up, probably partly because we can't afford our energy anymore. I see. All right, so listen, let's stick with the heat waves of the current yes, summer, please. of this summer, and just listen. I've got three quotations. This is kind of longish to set it up, but what I'd like you to listen to is the tone. I'd like you to listen to the attitude or the way that the people I'm about to quote are talking about the heat that we're experiencing this summer. Michael Mann, environmentalist at Penn State University, speaking in July, quote, now the warming has reached the point where we're seeing the consequences play out in real time in devastating events. We've got to bring carbon emissions down by 50% within the next 10 years to prevent the planet from warming beyond a truly catastrophic amount, close quote. President Biden, again in July, quote, right now 100 million Americans are under heat alert. 100 million Americans. It's astounding the damage that's being done, close quote. Last quotation here, John Kerry, who now has the unwieldy title of Special Presidential Envoy for Climate. This is John Kerry last April. You all saw, quote, you all saw the most recent IPCC report. IPCC, of course, stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a UN body. You all saw the recent IPCC report. In one scientist's words, our house is already on fire. Too many around the world are pursuing the path of least resistance. All evidence shows that this is the path of greatest destruction." Close quote. Devastating, catastrophic, astounding destruction. Mm. Okay, so again, tone, attitude, is that apt? Is it proportionate to the, to the threat or challenge or whatever word you'd like to use? How do you respond to that question? Well, I think you've, you've pretty much laid out the basic problem of the climate challenge, that it is a real problem, but then it's being sensationalized beyond all belief. And very often we then try to push really poor policies that actually, as we just talked about, uh, end up increasing some of the other problems that we also need, for instance, uh, to tackle, for instance, cold death. So take a look at this. Uh, economists have spent a long time trying to estimate what are all the damages that will come from global warming. So eventually, we certainly expect that there will be more heat deaths. We expect that there will be more uh, flooding because sea levels will rise or in reality, we'll have to spend more on protection of, 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 of uh, 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 close to the sea and so on. There's be, there'll be a lot of damages. There'll be a lot of problems. There'll also be some benefits, but overall, there'll be damages. That's why it's a problem. They've tried to add this up. Uh, and we have lots of economists doing that. The only economist to get the Nobel Prize in climate economics, William Nordhaus in 2018, his estimate, it's roughly in the middle of what people will be saying, suggests that the total damage of global warming by the end of the century will probably be in the order of 4% of GDP. Now, that's 4% 4 4 of today's GDP no, or 4% of, of the GDP of, 90, of the GDP years, in the uh, 78 in, years in, from in, now. in, in 2100. All so right. that's not a trivial amount. Uh, and clearly that is something that we should be focusing on. On the other hand, we also need to get a sense of perspective. So uh, the average person, this is the standard UN middle of the road estimate, the average person in the world will be about 450% as rich as he or she is today in 2100. We'll be much, much richer. But because of global warming, it will now feel like we're not 450% as rich, but only 434% as rich. That's definitely a problem. It no, is it not isn't. the it catastrophe. It isn't even a problem. Well, look, it, it, when you do this in the- We'll we get rich so much more, we'll get rich so slightly more slowly that nobody will have any 
sense of it. But but that but unless again, you live we, right we, on on, we, yes. on a barrier on unless you live on an island yes. off South Carolina where the sea level rises a foot and a half. And and again, sea levels we know how to deal deal with. You know, uh, Holland is a great example. Forty right. percent of Holland is below sea level, and most people don't feel that. You know, you fly into Holland, the uh, Schiphol Airport, the fourteenth largest airport in the world. It's the only major airport that has ever been a former site for a naval battle. Uh, but you know, you don't. That's feel... entirely reclaimed. Uh, yes, from yes. the from the sea. Oh, absolutely. Oh, they I didn't they know that. they point that uh, proudly on their website. But the but the main point here is again to say. We need to get a sense of proportion. All things that make us less well off are real problems, but it's not the end of the world. It's not this catastrophe. And there is something wrong about this using just so more people die from heat. You mentioned England. You know, uh, there was just a new study out last month that, uh, that estimate how many people die from heat in cold in England. The answer is about 750 people die from heat. On, on typical years. It is likely that because of this very, very high heat wave, more than 1,500, maybe even 1,600 people died in England from this heat wave. How many people die from cold every year? 60,000 people. We just have no, you know, it's this mm. level versus this level, and we don't have a conversation about it. The other part of this is how do you tackle this? Mm -hmm. So you also Hold on. mentioned. I want to come to how we tackle that in a moment. Okay, but, true, and I promise okay, I'll give you okay, lots good. and yes, lots of time. Brilliant. I will probe you on that. But I have one the heat waves that have been experienced in Europe and in this country and now apparently in China, that's one of two big climate events that have taken place this summer. Here's the second one. The second one concerns Australia's Great Barrier Reef, which environmentalists have been warning for many years now is under threat from warmer seas. So let me give you a set of headlines and then a quotation. And here's the set of headlines, every one of which comes from the New York Times. March 2017, large sections of Australia's Great Barrier Reef are now dead. April 2020, Great Barrier Reef is bleaching again. Bleaching is said to occur when plants that live on the reef die and deprive the underlying coral of food. June 2021, Australia's record heat means another blow to Great Barrier Reef June, uh, also in June 2021, Great Barrier Reef has lost half its corals, close quote. Now here's the quotation, which comes from the Australian Spectator of this year, quote, the latest survey of the Great Barrier Reef by the Australian Institute of Marine Science, which was undertaken in May, we're talking about a survey of this past spring, reveals that coral cover has not only recovered across two thirds of the reef, it is now at its highest level in 36 years of observations." Close quote. Now, why did I have to go searching to the Australian Spectator, an Australian magazine, to find that fact? Because there didn't seem to be a corresponding headline, good news headline, in a major American newspaper. Okay, so what is going on? First of all, it, it, I know you've tweeted about the Great Barrier Reef, so if you can explain how on earth it could have suddenly recovered, even as the seas haven't cooled as far as I know. But the deeper point here is, why do we seem to have such a bias toward bad climate news? Let me refine it based on what you just said. Why do we have a bias about warming, hmm. bad news about warming? and such a willingness not only to ignore good news, but evidently to ignore bad news about cooling. Where does this strange bias come from? Yeah. So it's great questions. I, actually, I, I just want to, you know, uh, uh, in, in fairness, uh, both The Guardian and New York Times and oh, several the Times other did, did cover they, this? They, okay. did, right. they did do one story on this. All right. I stand corrected. And, 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 that's, and, that's and, the main, and the main point, of course, is that when it comes out, and this was a, the official uh, uh, notice, this is actually so good, it's really hard to ignore. And, and so their main story was, uh, okay, it looks like it's actually really good now, but it'll probably get worse later on. Right, uh, right. And, and it tells you this general story that we know uh, in, in so many ways, uh, bad stories is just much more fun. It's this thing, thing that sells newspapers, that gets clicks, whereas good news is just sort of 
not all that interesting. So I think there's a wide bias in this, and this is not just in climate, but it's also in all other so areas. So that's just a normal yeah. journalistic bias toward well, but, but man bites dog is But news. obviously it makes us really, really badly able to tackle issues because right. we, we get this overwhelming feeling. So when, when you ask people, uh, uh, is this, you know, is this going to endanger your life? So for instance, uh, uh, a new OECD survey showed that 60% of all people in the OECD believe that it's likely that global warming le will lead to the end of humankind. So the mankind's extinction. And if you read the UN climate panel, as you just mentioned before, it says no such thing. It's just simply, and, and most researchers would also say that's just simply ridiculous. Right. This is not what we're talking about. 4% reduction by the end of the century is not the end of mankind. It's a problem, not the end of the world. The other part that you mentioned, namely, why can't we only hear about the, the problems that fit the narrative, yes, I yes, think is, yes. is, is, is in some way much more damaging. Uh, but but I think we also hear that from many other areas. You know, there are sort of politically correct stories that fit the narrative that we're trying to construct and the policies that we're trying to make. So you hear about all these heat waves because they fit, oh, we need to cut our carbon emissions. Whereas we don't hear about the uh, cold deaths, partly because they happen much more hidden and slowly. You know, they're, they're not something that happens in one day, but it's something that happens over a month. Uh, it's something that will typically uh, not be spectacular, but more sort of a, a, an ongoing attrition kind of thing. Uh, but it's also something that doesn't fit the narrative. And so a lot of newspapers and a lot of journalists will not really want to engage with us. And I think in the same way, Whenever there's bad news from uh, from the uh, uh, Great Barrier Reef, it's a great story because it fits right into we need okay. to do something. So about climate let, me, change. let me tease this out because you're saying two different things, and one is one is um, not news, and the other is yeah. actually very important and alarming in itself, in my opinion. What you're saying is that bad news is news, and we've known this about journalism from the beginning of journalism. Man bites dog is a headline. I beg your pardon. Yes, dog bites man is just the way life is. Um, car crashes make news that we've achieved some kind of new efficiency in producing cars isn't all right, fine. That's just, that's journalism rooted in human behavior. What sells is the sensational, the neg, okay, fine. That's one thing. But what you're saying about policy and the construction of a narrative to support certain policy, and I'm going to take it a step farther and see if you'll go with this additional step. At this stage of the game, policy has already begotten quite specific economic interests. There are lots and lots of investments in so-called sustainable energy, and they are, the people who have made those investments couldn't be happier to see the federal government spending billions of dollars in, the, we'll come to this in a moment, in this new piece of legislation President Biden signed. And so that's quite different, and that's pernicious. Yes. That is interests, specific, quite often economic interests, manipulating the news, manipulating the facts, manipulating, manipulating their fellow citizens is what it comes to. Yeah. to. But the instrument for that particular manipulation is to, to manipulate science, journalism, and so forth. You're arguing that that is what's going on. Yes, but unfortunately, it probably also happens in a lot of other fields. So, oh, you know, for, for sure, instance, right. in, in, in healthcare, uh, uh, some of my uh, uh, colleagues found that we were actually becoming much, much more effective when we were treating people in hospitals. So you didn't need as many more nurses and doctors. The outrage from that, oh, because obviously we are incredibly union. stressed and we need more uh, uh, you know, doctors and nurses. Uh, same thing in, in, in education. Uh, there's this ongoing point that in education, the best thing you can do is to get more quality teachers and more teachers for every kid. It turns out that that has, yes, it is a little bit better, but it's a very, very expensive way to help in education. Turns out that it's much more about getting structured teacher plans. It's about uh, teaching kids at the level that they are, uh, and that's about organizing the school differently. So they're much, much smarter ways. But you never hear that because it doesn't, fit scream, the, right? it doesn't fit the interest and it doesn't fit the negotiations around it. But the point that you're making still holds. This is true also for climate, and it matters a lot because this is where we spend 
hundreds, hundreds of billions of dollars and are promising to spend many trillions of dollars. That's why we need to know, and, and again, I'm, I'm trusting that you will get, let me get back to, uh, to talking about the policies, because that's exactly how we think about, uh, how we should be thinking about, for instance, heat waves. Okay, policy. Bjorn versus Kerry. <laughs> Countries in Europe have already invested billions, hundreds of billions in reducing their carbon emissions. In Britain, the Conservative Party, I say the Conservative Party, what I mean to say is even the Conservative Party has committed itself to net zero by 2030, I think it is. It's 2030, 2050. Uh, 50. 20, I beg imagine. your pardon, 2050. And the BBC, not long ago, asked John Kerry, the special presidential envoy on climate, say that three times fast, the BBC asked John Kerry whether it might make sense to relax that target, net zero emissions by 2050. And John Kerry replied, quote, I will say very pointedly and adamantly, we're behind. We do not have the luxury of rejiggering the date of 2050 right now because we are already headed to a warming of the planet of between 2.5 and 3.5 degrees centigrade, close quote. Okay, let's call this the Kerry position. And that position is that to save the planet, we do whatever we need to do and we pay whatever it costs to reduce fossil fuel emissions as quickly and drastically as we can. That's the John Kerry position. Now I want the Lomborg position, and I'm going to set it up by quoting your recent piece in the Wall Street Journal. It's true that as temperatures rise, the world will experience more heat waves, but humans adapt to such things, close quote. Okay, John Kerry, we're turning the planet into a cinder. We must we must stop fossil fuel emissions as fast and as hard and as drastically as we can, no matter what it costs. Mm -hmm. And Bjorn Lomborg says, well, no, we need to worry about ordinary citizens, ordinary workers, and adapt. So tease out, I, we, we can come to specific policy mm -hmm. uh, implications in a moment, but this is a fundamental difference in outlook or attitude, yeah. correct? So, so yes, and, and fundamentally the point that I make, and this is really just climate economics again, uh, Nobel laureate uh, William Nordhaus and many other climate economists. Look, there are costs to climate, but there are also costs to climate policy. Right. You can't just ignore one and say, oh, I'm only care caring about the cost of climate, but ignoring the cost of climate policy. You, so we have to pay both. The standard argument from climate economics is we have to minimize the sum of those two costs. That's a very different conversation. Now, Kerry is using, and I think a lot of people are using, the words that you mentioned earlier on, namely, this is a catastrophe, this is the end of the world. Devastation. It, essentially, they're telling you, this is a meteor hurtling towards yes, Earth. Yes, And we're all going to be doomed in 12 years or however many years right. it is. If that's true, then of course he's right. We shouldn't care about anything else. What he's basically saying is the cost of climate is so great that nothing we could do on the, on the cost of climate policy could possibly make a difference. It is about our survival. We should just throw everything in the kitchen sink at it and forget everything else. That's true if it were a meteor that was basically gonna eradicate humankind. Unfortunately, or fortunately, sorry, it isn't. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a problem. A, it's a problem. It's the 4% by the end of the century. It is like a lot of other problems, something we would like to fix, but we need to be careful that we don't actually fix it in a way that ends up costing us more. So the real point here is just simply to say, if this is the end of the world, he's right. It is not. And that's of course why you constantly hear this end of the world drumbeat. That's why it's so important that the OCD has now convinced 60% of all people to something that is manifestly untrue, that this is the end of the world, that humankind could be eradicated. This is a problem, not the end of the world. And that changes the, the so, uh, so Bjorn, way to think. Again, we're creeping up on specific policy matters. Please. But, but you keep saying interesting things, so it's your own darn fault. <laughs> but you just said, this is a bit of a flyer of a question because we haven't discussed this and I haven't seen you write about it. So I don't know what you're about to say here. Um, but you just said that the Kerry approach fails to engage in policy 101 calculations of, of weighing benefits against costs. All we're going to do is focus on 
slamming down fossil fuel emissions, and we won't worry about the other costs. That's all that matters. Okay. We, and I'll say we Americans and many of us in the West, but not those of you who live in Sweden, which took a different approach, we've just been through a two-year experiment in ignoring cost, costs, in, in failing to weigh costs against benefits. And what I'm referring to is COVID, mm. where they say, well, we have so and so many people who are likely to die. It seems as though many of those estimates, at least very early in the crisis, were overestimates of the fatality, fatalities that would likely to result. But what we're going to do now is close all the schools. We will shut down the entire American economy. We will throw something like a third or 40% of Americans out of work because we will shut down their places of work. And there were voices that said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know something about what happens when unemployment goes up. We know about alcohol abuse. We know about depression. We know about suicides. We know about domestic abuse. We know something about what happens when you throw kids out of school. We know how, how harmful that is in terms of their development. A six-year-old can't recapture his sixth year of learning reading. It's different when you try to... All right. We knew all, and those voices got kicked off Twitter and shut down on Facebook. So is there some kind of, I'm offering this to you as a column for the Wall Street <laughs> Journal for free, Bjorn, because Thank we've you. known each other a long time. Is there, and these costs yeah. are now, now, the, now that the urgency of, of the COVID moment seems to have passed, we're getting a clearer and clearer understanding of the enormous costs. And the director of the CDC just announced, I guess, for, as we speak now, 48 days ago, 48 hours ago, that the CDC failed catastrophically in managing COVID. She's engaging in a reorganization. Okay. We've just th been through an experiment in focusing monomaniacally on one possible set of benefits and ignoring the costs. And it doesn't seem to have worked all that well. Is there something for us to learn about climate? There, there definitely is. I'm, I'm going to now. You a may, couple, you, you, you may want to slap, you couple, slap me down yeah, on all kinds uh, of things. But go ahead. Uh, let me make a couple of comments. Um, so I'm engaged in trying to get people to think smarter about climate. That's right. really, really hard because a lot of people already hold very entrenched positions. Yes. I think in some way we're not going to help that conversation by comparing it to COVID, which, if I'm not mistaken is one of the places where people hold possibly even more entrenched <laughs> right. uh, okay. uh, 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 understanding. Fair point. And it, in, in, in some way, this just goes off on a tangent where everybody just gets really, really angry. I thought this would be a great way to compare the conversation. I found that it, all it does is it Makes enrages people, people on both sides. It's almost impossible to have, just like in, on climate, a sensible conversation on this. I will, let me show you one thing that where I think, so, so fairly early on, we did uh, some of the first cost benefit analyses for, for poor countries on, on basically uh, uh, making radical shutdowns. And what we oh, found- Oh, you did at yes, Copenhagen yes, Consensus yes. Center? So you did to get together oh. with some of the, uh, uh, the best economists in the field, trying to uh, look at what's the cost and what's the benefit. Remember, shutting down your economy in a rich country because you want to save mostly old people can make sense because you're a rich country. But if you're a poor country, the costs are much, much higher. You have a much different age profile. So you actually have fairly few people who are in the threat zone. And it turns out that the costs were so great, the economists wrote about this, many others as well, uh, that we found that it was a terrible decision to shut down. Just simply would be enormously costly and save fairly few people. And this, of course, is the kicker, for these countries, they have many other things that people die from HIV, malaria, right. TB, so on. And it turned out that for the cost that you would save a couple of hundred people possibly from, uh, uh, from, uh, uh, from COVID, using those probably exaggerated models, as you mentioned early on, you could save hundreds of thousands of people for the same amount of money. So when you have lots can, of people can, can dying- you name a couple of the countries you studied just so, so we this, have a clear idea. This was uh, for Uganda and Malawi and later on for India. Okay, thank yes. you. So uh, what we found was in countries that have little resources, that have a 
uh, an age profile that is not conducive to lots of, uh, of, of COVID and that also have lots and lots of other problems. You know, people dying from all kinds of other things that are very cheap to do. You should certainly be focusing on avoiding them dying from those things first because you will do much, much better. Uh, another sort of equivalent thing is, uh, and, and I think the whole world is waking up to this, there's a lot of arguments that you can have about, you know, to what extent should we shut down in rich countries. But one thing I think almost everyone agrees on now is that we shouldn't have shut down schools as much yes. as we did. Yes. Uh, the World Bank has now estimated that about a billion kids are on average nine months behind their life. Right. And that will cost the world. It'll cost them mostly, but eventually, because they're gonna be the world, uh, in, uh, in 2040, it's gonna cost $1.2 trillion in lost GDP every year. Okay. So, the, so the my, point is, uh, so yes, we should Hold on one sec, because my point is that there were people who knew it at the time. Yes. There were people who were saying at the time that shutting down schools was going to cause all kinds of trouble and that these costs were not being taken into account. And they were told to shut up. Yes. That, but, that's, yes. that's the point. Well, and, that, well, and there's some okay. of, and and, the and question is to what extent yes. that's taking place in the climate debate I, I, as well. I, I get that point, but I think okay. it's much, much better to get everybody on board and saying, all right, so maybe we didn't do it quite right on education. You're very here. forgiving, because well, <laughs> uh, because honestly, I don't think this is about putting blame. It's about making sure we don't make these right. uh, 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 faults again. And and honestly, because these are both very very uh, uh, controversial and very entrenched conversations, I think it's much better to simply say, look, we did something. You know, in Uganda and we work with the president, we really tried to do this. He, he, he's one of the countries, he forced Uganda to basically shut down school for two years. It's a terrible outcome. Now, finally, they're, they're back uh, uh, to school. But as you point out, this is going to be phenomenally costly for those kids, and it's going to be phenomenally costly for Uganda, and it will be phenomenally costly for everyone else. So yes, there is a lesson to be learned here. Let's not do stuff if we can actually see that it'll have huge cost and not all that much benefit if we could do it smarter. And that's really what I want to okay. take, uh, take, take away right, from So from now we come to what would Bjorn do? I'm going to quote again from a piece in the Wall Street Journal. It's entirely possible to help the climate and working families at the same time. The policies to do so are innovation focused. Innovation, innovation, innovation that comes up in your work again and again and again, explain. Yes, so I'm actually gonna answer a different part of your question because you promised I could get back. Oh, and well, then, right, I'll get, then, then I'll get back to, to innovation. So if you, we, we talked about uh, uh, heat waves before. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously one of the ways that you can do this though is just simply making sure that many more people can afford air conditioning. Right. Uh, but the funny thing is because we're so focused on CO2 emissions a lot of people feel a little uncomfortable about air conditioning because that will certainly in the next couple of uh, decades mean more CO2 emissions. Now, obviously, if you actually care about saving, especially old people, I think you know it's incontrovertible that you just need to say everyone should have more air conditioning. Remember also most of the poor countries in the world, so for instance, India, they have very, very little air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And most of these people want to have air conditioning, not because it's getting warmer, but because it's already darn hard, uh, hot. And if they could get richer, they would want to get air conditioning. But something we never talk about is a much better, cheaper, if more efficient, mm -hmm. and simpler solution to air, uh, uh, to heat, uh, uh, heat deaths is simply to make urban areas cooler. Remember, most urban areas where most people eventually right. will live, more than half the world's population already live in urban areas, mm -hmm. but by the end of the century, almost everyone will be living in urban areas. They're much hotter than their surrounding countryside because they have much more black surfaces like black roofing or uh, asphalt. And they have very little water features. They have very little greenery. They have very little of the stuff that actually keeps cool. you cool. Right. So the simple point is, why don't we make asphalt less black? Why don't we make rooftops less black? Why don't we put in more water features and greenery into cities? Not only would that make cities more pretty and beautiful, it would also dramatically lower, especially peak heat wave temperatures. Again, this is a simple, incredibly cheap uh, option. Now, when you give me some idea, when you say dramatically lower, yes. 
in first of all is there a city that has done what is there so there's, is there a, there's is some there a, yes there's a model there's, city singapore maybe no, there's, or? there's no model cities but it, both new york and los angeles and london many others have tried a little bit but they're not anywhere near this because that's not the main focus but right. uh modeling for instance for london estimate that if you have more water features if you have more greenery if you mm -hmm. have less uh, uh, black surfaces, you could reduce heat wave temperatures by about 18 degrees Fahrenheit. So that 104 degrees. degrees would have been down in the 80s. Yes. Again, this is Which modeling. Which is perfectly livable except for <laughs> English people. Yes. And, and again, this is modeling and you're not going to achieve all of it, I'm pretty sure. Right. Uh, yeah. But it shows you the difference from what we're trying to talk about with most policy proposals, which are small, small fractions of one degree Fahrenheit compared to this amazingly simple and cheap thing that most people would support because it actually makes your neighbor beauti more beautiful as well. Plus, it's very cheap and it'll work next year. Remember, most climate policies will only work in 100 years. Right. So I'm simply Net pointing zero out- zero by 2050. The one thing we know for sure is that Boris Johnson will no longer be prime minister. <laughs> yes, but also net zero by, by 2050 will have virtually no impact by 2050. It'll have some impact by the end of the century. Remember, if the US went net zero today, which you know, would be mind-bogglingly difficult and expensive yes, yes, and yes. terrible in so many ways, it would reduce temperatures, nothing now, and would re reduce temperatures by 0 0.3 degrees by the end of the century. This is if you run it in the UN climate panel model. We have no well, sense of how little- Say that again, so say that again. If the that US went underlined. Net, if the US went net zero today- If John Kerry got exactly what he what wanted, he wanted today. But today, not in, you know, in 30 years, 20, right. if, sorry, 20 years. Uh, no, 30 years, 28, uh, 28 years, right, okay. yes. If he got it today and every year from then on, and remember, that means we couldn't drive right now, we couldn't heat our homes, we couldn't cool our homes, mostly we wouldn't be able to eat anything because you know half or more of our food is with fertilizer made from right. fossil fuels. Right. And so, but of course we would eventually adjust to some of this, but this would be a phenomenally different world. If we managed to do that, and we did it all the way through the century, the UN model shows us that would reduce temperatures by 0.3 degree Fahrenheit by the end of the century. We have no sense of the size of the problem. Why is this so little? Because most of the emissions that we worry about that are gonna warm the planet are not from the US or from Europe or from Japan or Canada or New Zealand or Australia. They are from all the other countries that want to be rich. So they're from China, from India, from the rest of Asia, from Africa. Remember, Africa will be about 2 billion people by mid-century and uh, South, uh, South America. But these are the countries that want to be richer and will emit by far the majority, so about 75% of all emissions. And those are the ones that you really have to convince. So, sorry. I want to get back because you asked me, so what is it that I actually would have- uh, Hold on, uh, let me set it up again. Yeah. The Wall Street Journal, your piece in the Wall Street Journal, once again, it's entirely possible to help climate and working families at the same time. The policies to do so are innovation focused. Yeah. That's the word that popped. Yes. Catastrophe, devastation, That's those are John Kerry words. Bjorn Lomborg's word is innovation. Yes. So the fundamental issue here is a lot of people will tell you Oh, we already have all the technologies. It's incredibly cheap. Solar and wind is cheaper than fossil fuels. We're good to go. But of course, if we were, the whole world would already we switch. We would have noticed. Uh, yes. and, and the reason why you need this new uh, legislation that Biden has just uh, signed that is going to give about $369 billion for climate is exactly because if you don't do that, if you don't bribe people in a lot of different ways, they're still not going to be willing to spend most of their money on solar and wind. Now, solar and wind is great when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing, but it's very, very bad when it's not. And that's why you really don't want to use most solar and wind unless you have massive amounts of batteries, and we don't have that yet. So that's why I'm arguing. We need to get to a point not where you have to subsidize people to do all the things that you would like to see in the future, but a place where this energy technology will be so cheap that everybody will just want that to buy it. the markets will solve the problem. Well, no, 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 no. It's not the market will just solve the problem, but that the innovation will have made the uh, the technology so cheap that, that it's the cheaper than- will solve well, the problem. Yes, but, but, but the point prices. is- Prices, the, the, yes, the prices but the, will, but, but price the, will, the do, market will solve it. So the reason why the market will probably not solve the problem is because 
Right now, fossil fuels are fairly cheap. Green energy is not. And if you make the innovation that will eventually make us th this technology much, much cheaper, you will probably not have your patent back I by see. the time oh, oh, okay, okay, you, sorry, you sorry. breakthrough comes through. This is the standard argument for why you need government Right, spending right, right. on innovation. Uh, the transition instance, has to be handled by, yes, and, by public and, money. Yes, and this is no right. different from, from medical issues. Uh, so uh, the reason why we spend lots of money okay. on you know, blue sky medical research is because you can't expect Pfizer to do all of that. What you can do is you come up with all these great ideas, they eventually percolate through to something that's very specific, then Pfizer will come and make it into a marketable product that we all want to buy because we'll live longer. That's the way to go. We need the same sort of breakthrough for energy technology. One way to do that would be fourth generation nuclear. Nuclear is you a- say, You say one way to do it, but that's yes. really what it comes down to, isn't it? Nuclear no. is all roads, all innovation roads lead to <laughs> nuclear? Well, so some people would like that to be true. Uh, and I'll give you an explanation of why that's possibly not true. So okay. partly we're not gonna be able to power everything with, uh, uh, with electricity and nuclear only provides electricity. Remember, we only get about one-fifth of our energy from electricity right now. We could probably make that much bigger, but mm -hmm. it's still not gonna drive everything we like about society. You know, what's gonna drive your car, especially your trucks, uh, what's gonna heat your homes, what's gonna produce all the, uh, 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 for instance, co uh, uh, for instance, uh, steel and fertilizer and so on. A lot of these things are very, very hard to electrify. But the fundamental point here is, Third generation nuclear, which is what we have right now, right. is fairly expensive. It turns out that if you build new uh, nuclear power plants, they're way more expensive than even you know, much solar and wind. That's why we're not really doing well on this. Because of the regulatory overhang? There, there's a lot of reasons, and I'm sure that's In other a words, if the Chinese part. build them, how, how expensive are they, they? They're still fairly expensive, but right. they're somewhat less expensive, right. absolutely. But the Advocates for fourth generation nuclear, so that would be Bill Gates and many others, right, are right. saying, if we innovate this, so that's basically a small modular uh, uh, process, uh, you'll just build them in a factory, you'll get the uh, regulatory approval in the factory. Smaller, and then, safer, and then cheaper. And then just make tens of thousands of these. Right. And the point is that they're incredibly safe because they're uh, passively safe. So if you plug, unplug all the electricity, they'll just not do anything, right. it, unlike the current set of uh, uh, generators, will, which will not blow up, but kind of blow up. So you could argue that they will be incredibly cheap, incredibly safe, and very easy to do. Now, my, my concern with this is, that's what they told us about the other three generations as well, right? So we wanna see if that comes true. If it comes true, if fourth generation nuclear is just incredibly cheap and safe, we fix climate change because everyone will buy it. Right. But I think we'd probably be better off by funding a lot of different technologies because what if fourth generation nuclear is not gonna be it? There's, there's, I, I'm just gonna tell you this one wonderful story and it really is nothing but a story. But Craig Venter, uh, the guy who cracked the human genome back yes, in 2000, yes, right, right. he has this idea uh, that he wants to basically make a, a, a gene modified algae mm -hmm. to put on the ocean surface and what it'll do there is it will basically pick up sunlight and CO2 and produce oil. Then we harvest all that and we basically have our own Saudi Arabias out on the ocean surface. We'll just harvest all that, we'll keep our entire fossil fuel economy and we'll feed it with this oil that's now CO2 neutral because it just picked up the CO2 out on the ocean surface. That way- So in a weird way, could, it's recycling CO2. We're, we're recycling right. CO2. Right. And we just do it with solar energy from the ocean surface. Now. That's an amazing idea if it's gonna work. It's not right now. I mean, we can make it work in principle, but it's nowhere near commercially uh, viable. But the point is, if you have a thousand of those ideas, now, fourth generation nuclear from Bill Gates is one, Craig Venter's slightly crazy idea about uh, algae on the ocean surface is another, and there are lots and lots of these ideas. Fund all of them, because remember, researchers are incredibly cheap but we want just one or a few of these to come through, and those are the ones that'll power the 21st century. And the real trick, of course, here is, whereas the US and Europe and well-meaning rich Westerners can afford to say, no, 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 we're gonna be spending hundreds of billions of dollars, even on very ineffective climate policies. You won't get that to happen in China, 
in India and the rest of Asia and, and, right, and, and Africa. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but last year when, uh, when India promised they might go net zero 2070. In, in 2070, 2070. but they, 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 they went on stage in Glasgow and said, we, we promise this. And then afterwards they sent out a press release five days later and said, oh, we forgot to tell you one thing. We're only going to do this if you guys give us a trillion dollars by 2030. Right. So, so basically, you know, imagine the U.S. and everybody else going around with a cup and get a trillion dollars to do that. That's not going to happen. That's why we can't expect the majority of the world to go net zero unless we get something that's much, much cheaper. Right. Okay. And if, I, if, if you'll just allow me to say one more thing. Look, this is no different from how we fixed all other problems in the world. We've never fixed problems by telling everyone, I'm sorry, could you just do something that's incredibly annoying and difficult and costly? and keep doing it and make everyone do that. that that's just not gonna do, that's what we're trying to do right now. The way we've solved problems is by telling people, here's an innovation that'll make it your life better, okay. cheaper, and more effective. So here's what President Biden has done. He's killed the Keystone XL oil pipeline from Canada. He's rejoined the Paris Agreement, and now he has signed this climate bill, which would spend almost $370 billion over about a decade and the money would go to tax credits for solar panels, wind turbines, heat pumps, and electric vehicles, none of which is new. The money would also provide incentives to businesses to manufacture more renewable technology infrastructure here in the United States. Okay, so there are many ways of looking at this. One way of looking at it is that the Democratic Party has chosen to divert $369 billion over a decade to its own interest groups, its own supporters, that's one way. Another way, just as you put it, is that we're gonna be spending this money to nudge, entice, bribe people to use technologies, this would be the most optimistic way of putting it, in the hope that one or another of these technologies will achieve a kind of liftoff. Okay, but none of, no way of looking at it says this is money spent there is no climate Manhattan project here. I now make you president for a day. What do you do and what does it cost? Give yeah. me your top yeah. two initiatives and how much you'd spend on and what it would cost. All right, the, my first concern about that is that if I'm only president for a day, somebody else will revert that after, after that day, right? But, well, I can but wave, yes. I can, my sure. wand solves that problem okay, as well. Okay, good, yes. So we should be focusing a lot more on spending on innovation so that's the main part. And this is what we don't get about the climate conversation because it's so panicky and alarmist and we're all gonna die right now. It feels like we don't have time to you know, do all that research and stuff. We just need to do the stuff that we already have and that's why we end up in these boondoggles. Over and again, we simply spend lots of money on stuff that we already know most people don't want unless you subsidize it for them. The second thing that we should be investigating is a lot of these smart ways to adapt. Uh, so, you know, very clearly we talked about, you know, uh, uh, cooler cities. Uh, you should also, if you're worried about uh, uh, Miami, and you probably should be, eventually sea levels will rise and that will be a problem for Miami. But there are very simple and cheap ways to deal with this. Holland, again, has shown that. We know that this would cost much less than 0.1% of GDP. So the whole Dutch experience, just get this, the whole Dutch experience since the 1950s, they estimate this has cost them, so all the protection that they've had has cost them less than what's the equivalent, about $10 billion. Now, that's not nothing, but over uh, 40, they've 60 years. They've added something like 20% to their land mass yeah, or some this, huge, this is, right, okay. This is nothing, and that's the real point. These are very, very cheap things, but they're not the politically correct things to do. They don't feel like we're solving the climate challenge. But of course, we would actually, we would solve it through the innovation. So, so and we would solve the problems through adaptation. So you set up, what do you, I'm just trying to think through. If, honestly, if we could yep. make you, or, or to be more realistic, you're drawing up a, you're drawing up the, what, a, what a president of the United States, you're drawing up an agenda on which to run for office and you offer it to Democrats and Republicans yep. alike. Here's what you could do that would actually do something. Yep. And what do you do? You set up a kind of DARPA. Yes. A, Yes, but and, with, and look, there's lots of different ways to do this, and obviously and you what, also need to get How much does it cost each year? But it, the cost would be in the order of 20 to 30 billion dollars in total. Remember, that's much, Bjorn, much that's less than what- that's a bargain. I know, I know, and that's what's so amazing about this. And we're, we're spending literally- votes. 
<laughs> it doesn't, doesn't, buy, doesn't buy votes. And it doesn't, and it doesn't get your, the media on board because it feels like I've just said, oh, we'll fix this in the next 20 to 40 years. And that's true. My solution will not fix global warming right now. But of course, neither will John Kerry's or anyone else's. We're simply saying, oh, we want to feel virtuous here and now with lots and lots of money. So just to give you one sense of, 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 of this new climate bill, it's, it's also other things, right? But let's just say, take the climate part of it, uh, which is, as you say, $369 billion. That will probably buy us a reduction in emissions instead of about 30%, it'll be 37%. So that's nice by, by 2030. Uh, that's nice. I just took those numbers. These are uh, the Rhodium Group, but there, there are several other estimates. There are no official estimates, but it's roughly in the same ballpark for all of them. I just then put that into the UN climate model. I, I was actually on vacation, but it's not very hard to do. So I figured, I, I, you know, somebody ought to do that. This is the way and, you spend your vacations. Uh, yes, that's all terrible, right? right? Uh, and, and, uh, and then you run, what would the world look like if Biden didn't do this? And what would the world look like if you did do this? The difference, and of course you also need to make expectations of what will happen after 2030. Uh, the pessimistic view is when the money runs out, we don't cut anymore. I think that's a reasonable, but probably slightly too pessimistic uh, uh, estimate. The optimistic version is we'll keep doing the best that we possibly could for the rest of the century, which I think is wildly optimistic. But yeah, so uh, you get these two fairly different uh, uh, viewpoints. Then you run them and you see, what would the temperature be like if we didn't do anything? Well, it would be almost five degree Fahrenheit hotter by the end of the century. But then you plot what would happen if you did Biden, and unfortunately you can't tell the difference. I can't show you here, but you really need a very, very fine pen. It turns out that the optimistic version will reduce temperatures by the end of the century by less than three one hundredths of a degree Fahrenheit. So Biden, it'll have no impact even by mid-century, but it'll have a tiny, tiny bit, you know, still not something we could measure. The pessimistic version, the one that when money runs out, we'll do no more, turns out that you can't even tell. I couldn't tease them apart. I actually need to multiply everything by a thousand to make it work in Excel because they ju it was you just the same line. It was less than one thousandth of a degree Fahrenheit by the end of the century. And so you, you have all these politicians that go up there and say, now we've saved the world. But the reality is when you actually run in the model is, no, you've spent $369, uh, $369 billion and you've made no measurable difference to the world. Was that really what you wanted to be remembered for? Well, the politician is secretly thinking, ah, yes, but think of all the votes I bought. And, and, and I get that that's a all good right. point for a politician. A few last questions, Bjorn, if I may. We've known each other a long time. You published The Skeptical Environmentalist. You burst on the scene. Actually, you were on the scene beforehand, but you burst on the scene in a big way with The Skeptical Environmentalist, a big, big bestseller. And you published that book in- uh, 2001. 2001. So we're getting on more than two decades ago. Here's the question. What has changed, in your experience, what in the discourse about climate and the environment has changed since. And I will tell you exactly what I have in mind. I'm just wondering whether you get treated something in the nature of the way people who said in the last 18 months or two years, wait, wait, don't close schools. And they were kicked off Twitter and they were demonized. And I'm wondering whether it, when you publish The Skeptical Environmentalist in 2001, it's a big bestseller and there's something fresh and engaging, and of course, because that's the kind of person you are as well, Bjorn. But has the, has the, has the discourse changed? Do you find yourself demonized in some quarters and in some ways, or are people still willing to listen to you? <laughs> so I, I, I think it's more that I've always been demonized and I'm still demonized. Uh, but, 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 but look, I, I challenge a lot of vested interests. Um, so let me give you another example. If you ask most people, what is it that they do most for client, sorry, for the environment? It turns out that the answer is recycling. Almost mm. everyone recycles to help the, uh, the world, or the, you know, save the planet, that kind of thing. When you do most of the studies, some things uh, like recycling copper, 
recycling aluminum or aluminum. I can never find aluminum out which in this country. Aluminum, <laughs> yes. um, and right, right. and you know some other things are really smart, but that's not what we mostly recycle. You recycle paper. You recycle uh, glass. Uh, mostly because we were worried about running out of resource, because we're not going to run out of trees and sand. So the reality is most recycling is a fairly poor investment. You spend a lot of dollars and you do fairly little good for the environment. Now, if you tell most people that, they get annoyed. Why? Because if you've just spent the last 20 years of your life recycling, you don't want to hear that you just this wasted in the, the last... Composting yeah, bin. This yeah. is... why, why would you want to hear that? Why would you not just want to kick off that guy from Twitter? So, so it makes sense to say that a lot of people get annoyed because I'm basically challenging people both and is this the end of the world? You know, yes, there are more heat waves. There are more heat deaths. There are a lot fewer cold deaths and cold deaths are much more important and why aren't we focusing on that? The second part, what are some of the solutions? Why aren't we building greener cities that are actually be much cooler? Why don't we focus on innovation that's much cheaper, you know, the $30 billion right. rather than right. $300 billion, and will actually also lead to solutions that China and India and Africa will do? So I make annoying arguments that I think are so sufficiently reasonable that people get really, really annoyed. That's, that's part of it. Uh, because I, you can't be written off. Yes, I, it, it's sort of, he's not, He's not totally dumb, and he's saying something that sounds a little right. It makes sense, that bastard. A little bit, yes. Right, all right. So, so I, I think there, there is that part of it. I think the other part of the conversation is the catastrophizing of climate. Uh, so if you look back in 2001, most people were sort of, yeah, that's a problem. But right, that was about right. it. Now, 60% of all rich countries believe that the world will end. I mean, what, sometimes it blows my mind. I get why. And, and it goes back to that point of saying, if you're John Kerry or anyone else, if you're going to convince me to spend lots of money and not think about how effective it is, you really have to tell me it's because this you know, meteor that's hurtling towards Earth and we just got to you know, send Bruce Willis and all the guys up there and, and fix it before it's too late. That makes sense if it is the end of the world. And that's what this relentless media campaign of just focusing on one bad thing after another and only telling us those stories that fit the narrative. So, you know, we'll tell you every time the, uh, uh, the uh, Great Barrier Reef is worse and worse, but we will just, you know, give you one story and then we'll go back to saying, oh, and it's probably going to get right. back. When Even it's the good back. news is yeah. bad. Yes. So we are not well served. We're not actually going to solve the problem. We're clearly not solving the problem because we've just in, done another one of those policies that'll cost a, tr you know, a lot of money right. and actually not deliver anything. I think the only way to do this is to get people to realize, wait a minute, this doesn't fit my worldview and it doesn't fit the, my real life. That's what's happening with Ukraine. And that's what's happening with these enormously high energy costs. I think, especially in Europe, but also elsewhere, people are starting to realize, wait a minute, I thought you were going to tell me that all my energy bills would be lower because we had all this green energy. Of course, the reason why the Ukraine war is a problem is because we need gas to fill in for when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. And that's why we've now become incredibly expensive for our energy. Look, we could just have had all of it with coal. There's a lot of other problems with coal, but fundamentally, we could just have run the whole world with coal and we would have had no problem. We have plenty of coal and we have it from all kinds of friendly nations and you can store it and do all right. kinds of stuff with it. The reason why we're in this pickle is because we have now for 20 or 30 years been saying we just want to go down the net zero path. Now we're starting to realize this is going to be phenomenally costly and most uh, of, of the constituents will not actually buy and into Angela this. Merkel shut down the coal plants and shut down the, the nuclear, nuclear power plants and said, okay, we'll take relatively clean natural gas from Russia. And Germany is now facing a very cold winter. Yes, yes. All right. Um, one more, couple more last questions here. I just want to see what you do with this. Pope Francis, his 2015 encyclical Laudato C. Quote, people may well have a growing ecological sensitivity, but it has not succeeded in changing their harmful habits of consumption which appear to be growing all the time. A simple example is the increasing use and power of air conditioning. The markets, which immediately benefit from sales, stimulate ever greater demand, and outsider looking at our world would be amazed at such behavior." Close quote. Air conditioning 
is not a sensible adaptation, but a harmful display of consumption. Yeah. Bjorn? Right. This is something you can only say if you're either, and I think the Pope is very honest. He may actually like to live in a little sweaty apartment and feel you know, sort of virtuous, but most people don't. And certainly they don't like to see their loved ones die from too much heat. That's why everybody buys air conditioning when they can afford it. Remember, India uh, and Africa has very, very low air conditioning consumption. What they're expecting is, even if there was no global warming, as they get richer, they're gonna buy a lot more air conditioning because they wanna live like you and me and everybody else. It's not rocket science. There is something really pernicious about this idea of saying there's, there's too much consumption going on. Consumption is, is something that when you're fairly rich, and it's hard to do this with a Pope because I think he's a, he's a good guy. He probably would live without air conditioning. He would well, live without a car yes and all and no. I mean, those loggias in the Vatican are nice and breezy. I don't know that yes, they suffer yes. from heat I, I actually much. lived oh, at that place. I, I had dinner with him as well. Did so, you? Yeah. Oh, uh, oh so yeah, you didn't go so, easy on him. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, he seems like a nice guy. But the fundamental point here is to say, it is so easy for rich people to say, you know what, all these other poor people don't need to get all the stuff that I have. Well, I'd like you to go first. And most people are not willing to do that. And most people would actually like to have better lives where they're better fed, they're right. better educated, they have more opportunity for travel and all these other things. So again, the even if you- The reason I'm quoting the Pope to you yes. is because of course what implies there is, doesn't imply it in his case, it's perfectly straightforward is not only am I wiser, I am morally superior. Hmm. Air conditioning is immoral. Yep. It's just consumption run amok. It, and and just, you just don't accept it. You just it's re just ridiculous. Right. I mean, first of all, it leads to better lives. And secondly, good luck convincing you know, the vast right. majority of the eight to nine billion people by mid-century uh, to live without things they can afford. Last question. This is a point you've made a couple of times now. According to a 2021 poll, 80% of Italians, 77% of the French, 75% of Germans, 71% of the British, and 60% of Americans were either concerned or very concerned that climate change would personally harm them during their lifetimes. Not that climate change was bad in some vague way, not that it would harm their great-grandchildren, but that it would harm them in their own lifetimes. Final question, Bjorn, what, just, what do you have to say to the, those people who are, there is really no other word for it, scared? Hmm. Well, the, the, the argument that I have and the reality that I'm trying to portray makes this a hard discussion because if the media constantly tells you whatever hurricane happens, whatever uh, heat wave or cold wave that we're gonna ignore and all these other instances, are because of global warming. Then obviously you think all of these bad things are because of global warming. Remember, there were really a lot of terrible things happening in the past as well. And we were much less adjusted to them. Just if you take this one statistic, which I think is fantastic and both, uh, and also amazing at the same time, but most people don't know about this. A hundred years ago, on average, people that died from climate related disasters, so that's floods, droughts, storms, and wildfires and extreme temperatures. We have reasonable estimates of this, mm -hmm. at least for the last hundred years. About half a million people died every year on average from these disasters. A century ago. A century ago. Today, so last year, 2021, the one where you know, we had the heat dome with 700 more plus dying, the floods in Germany that killed more than 200 people, uh, lots of other things you haven't heard about, two flash floods in mm -hmm. Af Afghanistan and so on, killed in total less than seven thousand people. So we are- Over a century when the global population is what tripled it's at least. Quadrupled, quadrupled actually, yes. Right. So the net effect is we've seen a decline of 99%. If you do it per person, it's much closer to 99.7%. Why? Because we're richer and hence much more resilient. So while people say, Oh, I'm gonna experience one of these things. That's absolutely true. You're probably gonna experience a hurricane or a drought or uh, something. Now, first of all, you would probably also have experienced this in the past, but you will probably experience slightly more of some of these damages. You'll probably see less cold waves, but you know, overall there will probably be some problem here, but it's not actually such that you will be much worse off. Right. The statistic tells 
you're going to be much, much less likely to die. That's why I start off my book. I don't know if you saw that, but you know, uh, uh, with uh, with this this girl, and there's lots of these uh, girl in one of these Fridays for the Future demonstrations that has this poster that says, "You will die from old age, but I will die from climate change." It's a great, you know, it's a great poster, which of course is why so many of them have it. But the truth is, no, you won't. You will die much, much later, you will live much longer and you'll have much better life. Now, because of global warming, it'll be slightly less, much, much better. And we should try to do something about that. But we should make sure that we don't actually end up making your life worse off, which is what we tend to do with some of these policies. And we should also remember the 7 billion or 8 billion or whatever it is, the vast majority of humanity that are not part of this conversation of rich people but actually just want to get out of poverty, stop their kids from dying from easily curable infectious disease and so on. They should also have the opportunity to live these full lives. And we're trying to tell them, I'm sorry, you know what? We got rich with fossil fuels, but you won't. That's not the right way to go. So yes, we should fix climate change, but fix it smartly. Bjorn Lomborg, thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you for joining us. Oh,